It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno. I'm Guy Benson. I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, August 14th, 2023, I'm Mike Emanuel. While much of the political focus these days is on critical Iowa, the first Republican contest in the race for the White House, some suggest the country should function a lot more like Iowa does. We have safe streets, we have strong families, and I think Iowans want America to run more like our state. And uh, we must fire Joe Biden to do that. And Lisa Brady. Several states are debating changes in prostitution laws, but critics of a push to decriminalize in New York say it could backfire and create more sex trafficking victims. I just believe that legalizing it in general, um, it's not always two consenting adults, that it just almost expands the industry. And I'm David Marcus. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. U.S. officials have serious concerns about Chinese behavior. One of the newer challenges has been related to agriculture. Chairman of the House Select China Committee, Congressman Mike Gallagher, says America needs to wake up to it. We've been asleep at the wheel. We've allowed massive Chinese purchases in our agricultural industry, the Smithfield purchase. We've had troubling reports of Chinese land purchases near military bases in Northern California and attempted purchase in North Dakota. John Boyd Jr., an Iowa farmer, and president of the National Black Farmers Association is raising the alarm, claiming this threat has the potential to hit all Americans hard. This is really a uh, national security risk. If you look at what China is doing here in the United States, this is a threat to food security. This is a threat to uh, intellectual uh, uh, property. And they're also stealing our land. On economic interests here at home, President Biden and his team keep selling his work on behalf of the economy. Bidenomics is just another way of saying restore the American dream. But some Americans, like Steve Forbes, don't necessarily agree. Yes, certain prices have come down, eggs have come down a little bit, gas has come down a little bit, but everything else is going up. Are your health care costs going down? No, massive subsidies are keeping that thing from exploding even more. Mm. Are college tuitions going down? No. Cost of living going down? No. On top of these concerns, both at home and abroad, it is also political season and things are kicking off in Iowa. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds says the focus of her constituents is finding someone who can win. I know Iowans, and I've had them come up to me and just say, hey, most importantly, we want to get a candidate that has a vision and can execute on day one. And bottom line, we want the candidate that we believe can win. Meanwhile, an Iowan serving in Congress is sounding the alarm about Chinese interests stealing American agricultural advantages. Nearly a decade ago, actually, to set the stage uh, right here in Iowa, in my congressional district, a man was spotted on his hands and knees, and he was literally digging up hybrid seeds in an unmarked field. Ashley Hinson is an Iowa Republican member of Congress. So this was like a test plot of hybrid seeds. And these were the product, as you can imagine, of millions of dollars of Um, Mm R&D among the most 
tightly guarded trade secrets. So um, what happened was uh, that man, uh, Mo Hailung, was actually uh, at the center of kind of a large conspiracy to steal our ag trade secrets, including those seeds. And what they want to do with them is they take them back to China, or they were trying to anyway, to reverse engineer them. Um, so that's just one way where they're trying to steal our technology, all of the resources that have been put into um, seed development to make things uh, more drought resistant, better yields, more pest resistant, all of those things, up to 30 to $40 million, in fact, for each of those inbred seeds to develop those. So when you look at that research and what they're trying to steal there, that costs directly our, our farmers and they're investing in that, right? So I think that that right there is one way where they are trying to deliberately undercut us. And it's with our farmland too. Um, they're trying everything they can to undercut the U.S. globally. Mm. You really dive into this topic in a recent Fox News article you co-wrote with Congressman Mike Gallagher. The article states, quote, China steals between 225 to $600 billion of American intellectual property a year, which amounts to around $4,000 stolen per American family. Looking at these mind-blowing numbers, what other areas is China trying to tap into and what more should the U.S. be doing to combat this? Well, I think this is why we as a select committee have been looking at foreign transactions. We need bipartisan CFIUS reform to make sure that uh, we can enable our Treasury Department and even our Ag Secretary to have a seat at the table with these transactions. When I look at this, I, I think that they obviously can't copy and paste our fertile land. They can't duplicate the work ethic of our farmers so they're going to try to steal it or buy it so um, we need to be tracking these transactions to make sure that they are are not buying things that could put us at a, a true disadvantage when i look at the vulnerabilities here in our food uh, supply and our supply chain it'd be very very easy for china to start secretly buying up our institutions our land and then decide hey we're going to take those acres out of production for example um mm. and cut off so i think you look at the seed technology, right? Could they reverse engineer that and then manufacture something that could be devastating to our uh, food crop? Um, so there are a lot of things that could happen in the future if we're not um, eyes wide open about this, uh, which is why you know we want to make sure that our agencies uh, have have the direct oversight that they need, but that they have the tools that they need to be able to hold these spies in essence accountable. Hmm. To another issue impacting every American family, the economy, as President Biden touts his Bidenomics plan, claiming it has led to economic success in our country. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'll be pretty clear about it. Bidenomics is a complete and total sham. <laughs> uh, I think it's based on the theory that Democrats seem to have that money grows on trees or uh, maybe in the basement of the Capitol someplace. Well, I haven't found that. So let me tell you about this, that when I look at the impact to Iowa families, I just spent you know a whole day at the Iowa State Fair yesterday. I see how hard people work for the money that they do have. Um, mm -hmm. Bidenomics is costing our families. It's a complete disaster. And um, when I look at that impact of government spending and these regulatory policies. Uh, it's just damping down people who are trying to make ends meet and grow their businesses in communities like mine. Um, and so I see the reality of that. And I think people who are living in the DC bubble or the Delaware bubble need to uh, have a, a hard wake up call. Anytime the president and White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre have been asked about Americans' disapproval of the Biden administration's economic performance. They claim the pandemic, Ukraine funding, and other outside factors have led to economic decline, not the president's policies. How much truth do you believe is in that statement? As many Republicans claim, this seems like a deflection of sorts. 
Well, it's absolutely deflection. And I think what I would say to that is that Americans, no matter how many times the Biden administration or the press secretary say uh, something, it doesn't make it true. Bidenomics is a disaster. The government spending, these policies uh, coming sometimes from agencies like the EPA or Department of Interior or the SEC, the FTC, you name it, all of the alphabet soup agencies that are continuing to hold Americans down, that is a direct result of the policies coming out of this administration. Uh, it's why People are having t a tough time putting gas in their car. Gas is back up again. Um, mm -hmm. Energy policy in this country. Energy makes everything more expensive, right? So talk about goods and services. So um, Bidenomics, again, across the board, has put the basics out of touch for average people. And so our answer, um, and we've put a number of these bills on the floor to, to counter the Biden administration, low taxes, less regulation, all of the domestic energy production we can possibly muster. That is how we get out of this Bidenomics mess and get our economy back on track for everyone. It's about opportunity. As you travel around your district and around the great state of Iowa, what are you hearing from Iowans about how the current economy is impacting their lives? Well, I, I would start with farmers, right? The cost of energy is so high and farmers are ultimately our energy producers, but they're also energy consumers. Um, their input costs are still at record highs. Um, I was talking about the food inflation, you know, at the grocery store. Iowans mm -hmm. and Americans continue to say, hey, look at this snowballing effect that we've seen with inflation. I, I think I read an article that the average family is now paying over $700 more a month. Um, than two years ago. So again, you look at that compounding effect, and that is a real pain point for families. Just last year, I, I talked to a, a mother who was working uh, extra hours. She was picking up extra hours. She has to drive her kids all over town and pick them up, right? She's a single mom. And that's the real person who, when I hear those stories, I think about, okay, every policy that's coming out of Washington, D.C. has a trickle-down effect that affects someone like that mom. Um, mm -hmm. And that's like my family, right? So I think that when I'm traveling the district, people are very interested in making a change in the White House. It's why, you know, obviously caucus season is upon us here in Iowa. And mm -hmm. uh, Iowans take our first in the nation uh, responsibility very seriously. And they're very excited to get to know uh, the candidates vying to make sure we make a change and fire Joe Biden next year. You mentioned Iowa being center stage in the political universe at this time every four years. Um, you mentioned the fair, and you also, I know, recently hosted a barbecue bash where some of the Republican candidates could speak directly to uh, constituents and voters in Iowa. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on this stage of the campaign, how your barbecue bash went, and, and what you're seeing out there as these candidates are trying to make their case to the American people. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's great that all eyes are on Iowa right now. Um, the national spotlight truly is on our state. But I, I think mm -hmm. it's because uh, we have so many great things to talk about here uh, under our governor. Um, I think we have the best governor in the country, Kim Reynolds. Um, mm -hmm. We have low taxes. Um, we have safe streets. We have strong families. And I think Iowans want America to run more like our state. And uh, we must fire Joe Biden to do that. And so I think that these candidates showing up, spending their time in Iowa, um, we're, we're vetting candidates, right? That's what we do. We get to know them on a personal level. We ask them the serious policy questions. I was very lucky last week. I had about 800 Iowans show up and seven presidential candidates. And candidates were just open to meeting Iowans. And I think that's what's great about our process and very unique about the caucuses. 
Has anybody surprised you out on the stump? Is there somebody that you've seen working it in Iowa that you think, wow, that they really are connecting with uh, folks that may be doing better than than the polls may reflect? Well, I think, you know, I've had a chance to be with a lot of these candidates, Nikki Haley, uh, Vivek, uh, both of them, I see them speak publicly and I can see people, you know, really connecting with them um, in person. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a chance to be with uh, Governor DeSantis um, last week. Uh, he was obviously at my barbecue as well, being able to see him on the stage and, and working the crowd. Um, so I, and I was with President Trump at the state fair and um, obviously he had a still had a huge turnout of Iowans who were there to see him and were excited to see him. So I think it was very interesting. And what what I've tried to do is uh, welcome everybody with open arms. If you want to run for president, again, we expect you to come to the state and do that work. But I, I've been very, very interested to watch these candidates kind of mature in their campaigns um, and get even better. So I can only imagine, you know, post-debate uh, how people are going to be reacting and, and how, how they're going to be able to answer Iowans' questions. Last question. Democrats changing the calendar, uh, moving away from Iowa leading off. Do you think that's going to hurt Democrats in the November election next year? Well, I I certainly think it was a mistake for them to do that. Um, The caucus process, as I mentioned, is so unique because Iowans do get to peel back the curtain. Um, I think moving it to South Carolina, you know, where it's a primary, all it is is whoever can have the most advertising dollars to get on TV. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think it's a disservice to the process. Um, But I do think that ultimately, you know, I look at uh, the campaign infrastructure that's built by going through this process. It's great to have that connection with the grassroots get everybody fired up for the election. And uh, the Democrats in Iowa won't have that um, this time around because their president has chosen not to do that. So um, we did have two uh, presidential candidates um, on the Democrat side who did come and do the soapbox at the Iowa State Fair. So I'll give them credit for that. But mm-hmm. um, I think, unfortunately, they have decimated their chances of, of having any sort of um, you know a showing, I guess, next year. And it's again, I, I think it's a mistake to, to move the caucuses out of the first in the nation state for the Democrats. Congresswoman Ashley Hinson of the great state of Iowa, thank you so much for your time. Have a great week. Thanks, Mike. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This is David Marcus with your Fox News commentary coming up. Beginning this fall, engaging in prostitution will no longer be a crime in Maine, becoming the first state to partially decriminalize it. It will still be illegal to be a pimp or to buy sex. The goal is to better protect exploited people while holding their abusers accountable because so many prostitutes are sex trafficking victims. I always love to say that you can't make a choice if you don't have choices. Melanie Thompson is a sex trafficking survivor who was kidnapped at age 12, repeatedly raped and trafficked through her teens. She's now an advocate with the Coalition Against Trafficking Women. Prostitution needs to not be viewed as an individualized choice. Rather, it needs to be viewed as an oppressive system that thrives on other oppressive systems. 
She says a New York bill proposing full decriminalization assumes that people get into prostitution willingly and that the proposal would make it easier for pimps to exploit vulnerable people. Democratic State Senator Julia Salazar introduced the Stop Violence in the Sex Trades Act. Supporters say prostitution involving minors, coercion or trafficking would still be illegal, but transactions between consenting adults would no longer be criminal, spurring debate about whether it would decrease or increase trafficking and whether any change should be made in a state where prostitution-related arrests have dropped under previous revisions to existing laws. I was an assistant district attorney for many years. I handled rapes, robberies, homicides, and as a younger prosecutor dealing with prostitution cases. New York Republican State Senator Anthony Palumbo. There are a lot of additional crimes that are a result of the prostitution trade. And really, we would just use the statute more so to just get people services. There's a huge drug culture in prostitution. There are a lot of mental health issues in prostitution. So... In 2020, the NYPD, which keeps very significant and accurate stats, made zero arrests for loitering for the purposes of prostitution, because a lot of times they would interact with someone who may be violating that statute and they would just get them to the services they need. So I think that this does open a significant can of worms. And I'm quite concerned if the Salazar bill were to become law, I think that As many studies have indicated, trafficking will increase, um, violence will increase. It will just be a a terrible thing for public safety. In Maine, I know supporters of the new law there said they wanted to end the criminalization of survivors while holding perpetrators accountable. And it seems like that's something that has broad support. But I guess how to do that becomes the question, right? Right. Well, exactly. And that's like most government policies, you know, they sound great in a vacuum, but when they're ultimately implemented, there are a lot of unintended consequences. And in 2012, there was a study in Europe regarding whether legalizing prostitution would increase on the scale versus substitution. Those are the two schools of thought. So that's the dynamic. But that study revealed that it was overwhelmingly trafficking increased with legalized prostitution because those people who are looking for those sorts of things will will gravitate toward a legal community. So everyone would agree that these victims need their services, that this is a terrible, dangerous industry, and we want to do what we can to keep those people safe and reduce trafficking and prosecute the bad guys. But with all of that in mind, I, I just don't think that the, the intent is there. I just don't think that that's going to be accomplished. I just believe that legalizing it in general, um, it's not always two consenting adults, that it just almost expands the industry. I'm sure their hearts are in the right place to do the right thing for these folks. I just think the manner in which it's trying to be accomplished is always uh, never an easy fix. How would what's on the table right now, even the bill that's less expansive in New York, if you will, how would it change in practical terms what happens on the ground for for police and prosecutors? I don't think it will change much. And that is my concern. And what I've always brought to the sponsor's attention is that this is already done. I understand people in politics, you want to have a splashy press conference and say, we're making you all safe and we're protecting the victims, particularly now because there seems to be a big 
divide when it comes to public safety between the parties, the two major parties. And I just don't think that the reality of it is that if they would bring in the stakeholders, bring in law enforcement, bring in prosecutors and have them sit at the table and have this discussion, they'll realize that in New York, prostitution is a class B misdemeanor, the lowest offense above a parking ticket. This is not something that is widely prosecuted. In fact, it almost never is. So to decriminalize it and just legalize it as a whole, I feel like the balance is in a, at a position that um, it's probably less beneficial than they think. Given that advocates say many or even the majority of prostitutes are people who have been victimized or exploited, they are in a vicious cycle. Is there another way to help or any alternate version of these bills that might win broader support? Sure. And that's true. And I would agree with that. And in my experience, um, it is overwhelming the amount of really sad situations that many people in the sex trade have experienced. So I do think that creating something which we do have a sex trafficking court, people don't realize that I'm out in Suffolk County on Long Island. For years, we have had a fully staffed five day a week sex trafficking court in Suffolk County. It's in most counties now. And that's the way to deal with it, is to provide the alternative means through the judicial process where folks can get services and help and medical help. And in return, you don't prosecute them. The case gets dismissed or greatly reduced. That's really, I think, the way that this could be best addressed is to not just make everything legal and open the doors and hope that law enforcement can have some interaction with the bad guys. Um, I think it's better to leave it somewhat status quo and just provide resources for the victims, for those that are victims, and for those that aren't. They need to be in the criminal justice system, unfortunately, and they need to be punished. And, the, and particularly those who are trafficking, they need to be punished severely. New York Republican State Senator Anthony Palumbo, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure, and thanks again for having me. Many advocates argue change is needed. So prostitution and sex trafficking are inherently linked. Eleanor Gayatan is vice president and director of public policy for the nonprofit National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Everyone who's trafficked into the commercial sex trade is trafficked into prostitution. And so from the perspective of sex buyers, they have no idea if that person is experiencing coercion or not. And so we have to reform prostitution law in order to shrink and reduce sex trafficking. One of the arguments against a change to the status quo, in New York at least, is that there's already more of a focus on services, on helping people, um, including medical care, for those who are arrested. In other words, if you use these services, then the case against you can be dismissed. What about those efforts? Is there not enough of that? Does that not go far enough? We need to put the focus squarely on sex buyers. They cause all the harm. There's an interesting study in 2018 of women in prostitution, including trans women, found 61% had suffered traumatic brain injury. It's so violent. And that's one of the reasons why people buy sex is to have power over, to abuse, to choke, to harm. 
Look at the Gilgo Beach murders. That was an average guy. He actually is quite typical of high frequency sex buyers. He's professional. He's got a family. He's white. And look what he was doing, murdering people. And he chose people in prostitution because they are too little valued. We should note still accused at this point and not convicted, uh, just for the record. Um, This can be kind of a fine line, though, right, between trying to focus on the prostitutes and perhaps decriminalizing prostitution for them while still being able to hold the people who solicit prostitutes and those who have control over them while still being able to hold them accountable. It seems like legally kind of a fine line. I mean, how can that even be possible? No, it's not a fine line. It's called primary prevention. It's the only way to prevent harm is to shrink this market. And they are causing the harm. The buyers are causing the harm. And yet too often, especially law enforcement will look the other way while they're booking someone in prostitution. They'll be like, hey, get home. And they'll ignore the guy that's driving the entire market, that's fueling the entire business of sex trafficking. In Maine, they used what's being called the Nordic approach, becoming the first state to pass legislation partially decriminalizing prostitution. There are proposals in New York right now described as going further than that. What about the argument from opponents of these proposals who say it will only lead to more trafficking and more victims? That's a lie. It's absolutely not true. And there's enough research that shows it's when you fully decriminalize the sex trade that you have an explosion in abuse. Berlin has 500 legal brothels in the city of Berlin alone. The vast majority of those women in those brothels are from Eastern Europe. They're from poor countries. They're poor people. They aren't German women. You expand the sex trade and you are expanding abuse. So if I'm hearing you right, you would favor partial decriminalization? Yeah. Yeah. So here's what has to happen. And Maine looked at this for two years. And the main paradigm shift is a bipartisan decision. This is a citizen legislature, but it was led by people who are from the domestic violence community and also see an analogy between between domestic violence and the relationships that lead to coercion in the sex trade. How do you think this will work on the ground in Maine? And are you you and other advocates hopeful that once it takes effect in the fall and it starts to play out over time, that it will encourage other states to follow suit. Absolutely. A few things are key. First, police training, law enforcement training to focus on the buyers. Also, lawyers, prosecutors all need to understand that there are new rules on sealing past criminal charges. So often people in prostitution pick up charges for crimes that they committed under the coercion of a trafficker. And those can cripple you for life. You can not get college loans or be able to rent certain apartments or get certain jobs if you have those charges. So Maine also decided to make it easier to seal those records. We have to train lawyers in Maine and train police to implement this new paradigm effectively. This is obviously a very, very sensitive topic for many people, including many advocates, especially when phrases like sex work are used or even or even commercial sex trade. You know, what would you say to other advocates who maybe have differing views on the best way to go about this, on the best way to help people who are caught in a vicious cycle and all of this? 
there are certainly a small percentage of people in prostitution who are consenting adults. I mean, we don't use the term sex work because pimps invented that term to normalize this unattractive and very damaging, lifelong damages caused in the prostitution practice. What would your message be to state lawmakers in New York as they consider changes? Talk to survivors. Talk to exited people who have been in the sex trade and who have exited. Because while you're in the trade, you end up being a lobbyist for it. Eleanor Gayatan, Vice President and Director of Public Policy at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg begins a three-day trip to Alaska. It's part of the Biden administration's efforts to promote federal spending included in the bipartisan infrastructure law. Tuesday, Wall Street will be watching for the release of the latest retail sales data. And about 4,500 employees of the city of San Jose, California are set to go on strike over what union officials say is understaffing and pay issues. Wednesday, a new ordinance takes effect in Scottsdale, Arizona, barring homeowners associations from requiring green grass in the yards of any new homes built or permitted. It's part of the city's plan to conserve water. Thursday, the latest unemployment data will be released. Friday, President Biden hosts a trilateral summit with the Japanese Prime Minister and South Korean President at Camp David in Maryland. The three leaders are expected to discuss the North Korean threat and efforts to strengthen ties in the Indo-Pacific. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. David Marcus. What's on your mind? As New York City's migrant crisis grows increasingly out of control, it is children who are paying the highest price and facing the most potential harm from the incompetence of federal and city leadership. Some 56,000 migrants have flooded Gotham in recent months, and floundering officials are running out of places to house them. Mayor Eric Adams has now set up 100 cots at McCarran Park in Brooklyn, mainly for adult males, who have given great reviews to the setup, including use of the pool, which kids flock to in the summer. All the programming in the south wing of the recreation center at the park, including a media center used by the city's youth, has been canceled until further notice, owing to the influx of migrants. Meanwhile, across the East River on Randall's Island, playing fields mainly meant for kids are being repurposed as makeshift Bidenvilles for the waves of humanity bursting the seams of the city. This all follows on the heels of the mayor using public school gyms to house asylum seekers while students are in attendance, which has led to major protests from parents. As if lack of recreation facilities were not enough, as of May, some 14,000 children of migrants had signed up for New York City's public schools, with that number only growing and threatening to overwhelm institutions with kids who, through no fault of their own, are unlikely to be able to keep up with their native counterparts. All the while, precious resources are being diverted from programs to protect the homeless youth in New York who have been here and have been suffering since long before the crisis. Between President Joe Biden's border bungling that has let loose the floodgates and Mayor Adams' shambolic sanctuary city shenanigans, it is the kids who suffer the most, even though they are not only blameless, but powerless. 
Sorry, kid, you can't use the media center to explore college scholarships. Bad news, bucko. No basketball in the gym this year. Just run around to your desk a few times. Oh, and the pool might be a bit overcrowded. What honestly makes this so horrible is that as our nation and its cities delay truly tackling this crisis, time is ticking on childhoods. It doesn't do a 12-year-old much good to get it figured out in five or six years because they aren't getting that time back and will be thrust into adulthood with a lack of needed preparation owing to adults' sordid choices. Also, let us not fail to mention that since March of 2020 and the disastrous COVID lockdowns, these kids have been getting the short end of the social and educational stick for three years already. This just furthers the punishment. It is difficult to discern a more vital purpose of local government than to protect children who are helpless to protect themselves, and yet this sacred duty is being thrown to the wayside by the unsustainable failures of Democrats at every level of government. The children of New York and America deserve better than the short shrift their plate has been given by liberals supposedly acting out of kindness to migrants. Where is the kindness to our kids? The playing fields and parks of this city where generations of New Yorkers made childhood memories now sit in the shadows of Bidenville's. That is the memory we offer today's youth. And make no mistake, our children aren't making sacrifices. That would suggest they have some say in all this. No, they are being sacrificed to progressive policies so blatantly failing that Democrats are now even squabbling with each other. It is time for President Biden to secure the border. It is time for Mayor Adams to stop taking resources from our kids. It is time for order to be restored before an entire generation is lost. The time to act is now, because faster than we might think, it will be far too late. This is David Marcus, author of Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.